back. Did you miss us? We certainly missed you. The two and a half uh, week holiday break was a little long, but the Antietam and Beyond podcast is back. I'm Tom McMillan with my co-host, John Banks. Hey, John. Tom, how you doing? Good, thank you. A special guest for us tonight is the first time we dip into the Antietam Battlefield Guides. We're going to veteran guide uh, Jim Buchanan, also a board member of the Antietam Institute, uh, known as the mayor of the West Woods. That's not an elected position. He was given that by a claim. He knows about as much of the fighting as in the West Woods as anybody who didn't fight there. So we're really looking forward to getting into that. But first, uh, John, how was your holiday? Tom, it was awesome. It was really good. Had some family in. Also did some Civil War Civil War stuff. Yeah. Battlefield tramping. Uh, over the weekend, went out to Stones River Battlefield, which is near us here in Nashville. It's roughly 30 minutes or so from Banks Manor. And the anniversary of the battle was fought December 31st, 1862 to January 2nd, 1863. Sometimes it's hard for me to go out there, Tom, because Murfreesboro, Tennessee is exploding and much of the battlefield, unfortunately, has been developed. But I was out there for something pretty cool to see something outside the national park boundaries. I had seen, seen this before, but on a limestone ledge uh, along the Stones River, two Union soldiers carved their names. Daniel Miller was one of them, and J.C. Bahoff, I believe I have that correct, both in the 115th Ohio, they were stone carvers and they inscribed uh, the Hazen Brigade, which is monument, which is on the battlefield, is the oldest battlefield monument still in its original place. I think I have that right. But they inscribed, made the inscriptions uh, on the monument, but in their spare time, apparently, well, they did, they went down by Stones River and on this remote, kind of hard to find limestone rock uh my friend of mine uh jack my battlefield tramping friend and i went to see it we finally found it after an hour of effort i'd seen it before but didn't quite know how to get back there finally figured it out jack was laughing at me and and taunting me like a true western pennsylvanian he's from western pennsylvania as i am and gave me a hard time but when i found it found the two names i felt like uh like i spiked the football moment it was really pretty cool. Plus, it kind of ties into a little uh, Antietam story that you have, Tom, right? Yeah, I, I love that stuff. There is a, I did a piece in the Antietam Journal about a guy, just a regular foot soldier who carved his name into the windowsill of the Dunker Church. His name was Henry Winters. He was from the 89th New York, and really no one knew who he was. But whenever I volunteer there, my wife Colleen volunteers there, we always tell People, it's back there and everybody goes back and looks at it because that is, we talk about walking in the footsteps. That's really where that guy stood. So it's really fascinating. There aren't that many uh, examples of that throughout all Civil War battlefields, but just a few examples of guys who were there. I found it really, I find it really cool to see that. So I'm glad you ran to that Stones River. It was outstanding. I always get goosebumps when I find, when you, when you can see something that a soldier actually did or he was there that is yeah. so cool, just yeah. like uh, our very cool guest that we have today, right, Tom? Yeah, absolutely. We had we had a nice, calm holiday too. Although we spent, uh, Colleen and I spent 
New Year's Eve day volunteering down in Antietam. There was quite a bit of a, a visitation. And then, of course, we had dinner that night at the unofficial official restaurant of the podcast, The Press Room in Shepherdstown. So I, I informed the proprietor that he is the unofficial official restaurant. He was very excited. And we do want to thank our official sponsor, Civil War Trails, but we'll get to them uh, just a bit later. So thank you, Drew Gruber and Civil War Trails. But to our guest tonight, Jim Buchanan, again, veteran, Antietam National Battlefield Guide, board member of the Antietam Institute, and someone, I mentioned this to you before uh, off, off air, Jim, I know a lot of people who love Antietam. I'm not sure I know anyone who loves it as much as you do. And you're from the D.C. area, so you're pretty close to Manassas. You're not that far from Fredericksburg. You're not that far from Gettysburg. What is it about Antietam that, that drew you to this study? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I, um, I do really uh, something about the place. It's a very special place. Anybody who goes there uh, will tell you. I think uh, part of that is that it is uh, so well-preserved. Um, and a lot of that is an accident of history. The way the interstate was uh, rooted, it was rooted to the east and to the uh, north uh, of the mountains and kind of created a, a kind of preserved valley there. So there's something really um, something really that calls you uh, about uh, Antietam and, and Sharpsburg and the and Pleasant Valley in that area. And I think when you when I was working full time and I sit in front of a computer all day long, um, you really long for a little bit of green, a little bit of quiet, a little bit of uh, a place to for contemplation. So I was looking around for places to volunteer in the Park Service and went on their various websites and just had an opening for a volunteer. So that's got that's the thing that got me started. But also in my family's history, uh, my great-grandfather, um, um, Isaac McBride, was a captain in the 72nd Pennsylvania uh, and was wounded there, shot through the kneecap, according to his medical record. Um, and so at that time, I knew about him, but not that much about him. So another another thing that drew me to Antietam was to try to research a little bit more about Isaac McBride and uh, his experience there. So I think those two things. One, one seeking, you know, sanity uh, and uh, away from work, and two, uh, trying to reconnect to a, uh, a family member. Jim, my favorite spot on the battlefield is the forty-acre cornfield, and yours obviously is the West Woods. I first met you way back, probably I, I guess more than a decade ago now. More than that, I think. Yeah. It, yeah. Oh, my gosh. It might be 20 years for all I know. But yeah. when I first met you, you were sitting on a chair uh, diagonally from the Philadelphia Brigade Monument. So I guess my question, well, my question is, my favorite spot is the 40-acre cornfield. You have embraced the West Woods. Yeah. Tell us two things. One, for listeners who don't know, what the West Woods are. Tell us where they are in the battlefield. And then two, tell us about your fascination with the West Woods that I'm sure goes beyond your your ancestor, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, it's a story that grabs you and, and just keeps pulling you in different directions every time you go at it. Uh, but uh, where where it's located, it's uh, located south of Stark Avenue, which means nothing to most people, uh, west of the Hagerstown Pike. Uh, it's um, marked by the Philadelphia Brigade Monument, which is the highest monument on the field, and uh, it's even higher than the New York Monument by a number of feet. 
And uh, as I mentioned, it's stop five, which is right after the cornfield. So that's kind of the location where it is. Uh, you'll notice the West Woods, as opposed to the cornfield, the West Woods and the big attraction there, at least for me, is has some really great uh, trees there. They're large uh, northern white oaks, some maples, uh, maple tulips, and so on and so forth. So if you're looking for some shade on a hot July day, um, putting up your uh, your chair underneath one of those those trees is, can't be can't be finer. So uh, while you guys out there in the cornfield are roasting away, uh, and just about anywhere else on the battlefield, it's very hard it's very hard to find shade. Um, and so, uh, as a shady guy, uh, that's the place I decided to go. Set up shop. Well, and you know the one thing is there are iconic. You know when people think about Antietam. Uh, there are some iconic spots. The Dunker Church was kind of on the edge of the Westwoods. Sunken Road, Burnside Bridge. The Westwoods should be, isn't always. Can you just tell people, tell us why it was so important? I know it was, it was chaotic there. It's just, you know, just a part of this battle, but but a very important part of it. Yeah, I think, uh, I think first off, I think the Westwoods has been over time on a, on appreciated or underappreciated. When I first started there, the um, the wayside that was uh, there at the Philadelphia Brigade Monument uh, was a Park Service wayside. And it was uh, it, it explained uh, how uh, Sedgwick uh, stumbled into the West Woods and uh, was ambushed by uh, troops under Jackson. Uh, and then in the course of only 20 minutes was uh, completely taken apart. Uh, that's the old kind of centennial view of what happened in the Westwoods. Um, and uh, they it's no longer there. There's much more modern interpretation. Um, so part of that uh, is, I mean, part of the Westwoods attraction, I think, uh, and what makes it special is that there's an emerging story uh, that over the last 20 years uh, has come out and and it's not finished. Uh, we're still trying to figure out what happened uh, in that location. It's a very difficult terrain there, uh, a lot of obstacles. Um, and uh, uh, it makes for, I think, the most unique battlescape uh, uh, at Antietam uh, that you can find. Um, if you, if you, for example, if you look at uh, First Corps, 12th Corps uh, advance out of, of, out of the north, uh, North Woods, and then later East Woods. That's a fairly straightforward advance uh, with a with a battle view, if you escape, if you will, from east to west of about 1,200 yards. But if you look at the West Woods, uh, where Cedric goes in, um, from the left flank, which is down at the Dunker Church, that's the 34th New York, to the far right flank, the first Minnesota, almost over touching uh, Nicodemus Heights, uh, that's that's uh, 1,900 yards. And that's a huge scape uh, of, of land, uh, a huge expanse of land that, that Sumner has to manage as a second corps commander, compared to Hooker, uh, who will just have 1,200 yards to manage in terms of the width of his battlescape. And then you throw in um, the obstacles and the terrain that are that mark the Westwoods, uh, where you can't see much more than beyond 100 feet, 100 yards uh, north to south. And so you get a you get a, a different a kind of a unique 
experience there in the West Woods that Sumner and Sedgwick had to contend with that no one else, no one else on the battlefield had to run into. And I think that's the thing that people often overlook when they do an analysis of what went on in the West Woods. And uh, I think they, they don't give Sumner uh, and Sedgwick uh, enough credit for trying to manage their troops in that, in that landscape. Do so, you, when, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's it. No, I was going to say, like, when you go to the, when visitors go to the battlefield today and look at the West Woods, those are not the woods that were there in 1862, right? Well, actually, the footprint of the woods uh, is the original. Um, we know that from the Cope Carmen maps, the 1908 edition, which is available to anybody at the Library of Congress. You can download them. Um, but uh, so the, the, the boundary uh, of the West Woods is defined by the Cope Carmen maps. And there's, that's how the park is using the map to repopulate uh, that space um, by planting trees. And the time I've been there, uh, there have been at least two tree planting um, events. And uh, so I guess to answer your question, what you see there uh, is the original West Woods. And that uh, is another unique uh, thing about the West Woods. Uh, it is being rejuvenated, if you will, so you come back in 150 years, you'll see what those trees look like. John, if I may interject, I do think one thing that Antietam suffers by is a lack of creative names because we have the West Woods, the North Woods, and the East Woods. Yes. Yeah. It just kind of lays. And I say, Jim, when I volunteer at the Burnside Bridge, you know what those woods are across from the Burnside Bridge are? They Burnside are the Bridge? South Woods. They're the, the South, South Woods. I, Very good. I, I feel bad. <laughs> anyway, the other one other thing uh, as, as a challenge of that to the West Woods uh, was uh, they built a road through the battlefield there. And we understand why they did it. There's a good reason, but also it, it also has an impact on interpretation, especially for guides such as you who give tours there so often. Yeah, that's a real eyesore. And of course, it's uh, uh, what we received from the 1960s uh, sensibility of anything uh, built during that period, whether it's a, a building downtown or it's a highway or uh, they, there's just... Uh, I think a lack of of history, a lack of preservation, and so they they carved this road right through the original um, farm road that um, that ran north south, and that um, was west uh, just west of the Fifteenth uh, Massachusetts Monument, but that's right through the battlefield. I mean, the real battlefield is over there. That's where a lot of the action will occur on along the <laughs> along that high-speed highway that, that runs through that that area. And it's it's a challenge because you want to take people over to the other side, the west side of that bypass, uh, and you do so uh, at your own peril. Um, some of those cars coming out of Sharpsburg, they're, they're um, you know, flying uh, 50, 55 miles an hour. And uh, you, you worry about that when you're taking visitors across. So that's an unfortunate thing. They've also, when they built it, we have pictures of the of the building of this uh, road uh, in 60, 61, 62, I think it was. Um, and that we, we could see the earth movers moving, shoving stuff around on the periphery uh, of, the of the road. So they've, you know, as they say in the parks, uh, they disturbed the land. Uh, so that's a further further desecration of that of that that part of the field but um 
Yeah, from time to time, uh, we talk about, uh, uh, would it be great to put a tunnel underneath that so we don't have to take our visitors' uh, lives in our hands or put a bridge over it or even more radical, reset the road to the, and push it further west and let it run on the parallel to the railroad tracks. Uh, but none of that's ever going to happen. I think somebody told me, it may have been you, Jim, that that, that bypass is akin to if at Gettysburg run a road over little round top yeah. or, or through the wheat field, you know, like a two lane highly trafficked road through the wheat field or something. Uh, absolutely. Just imagine a four laner going up through Emmitsburg Pike. What's that about? Right. Exactly. You know? Exactly. Well, here, here's what I'm interested in. Cause I've been over many times over to the Lucker cabin, which stands, yeah. it's part of the, part of the, 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 uh, Part of the battlefield. Mm -hmm. What tell us for people who are unfamiliar with Antietam and that part of the battlefield, what happened over there? That part of the battlefield that very few people, to my knowledge, ever go over there. Right. Uh it's a beautiful area, and you're right, very few people do go over. I, I'd say probably maybe a hundred people a year will venture across that uh beyond the 15th Massachusetts Monument and go west, go across that speedy road. But there, there is a couple sites over there. There's the Hauser property, which is up on the high ridge, which is fairly recently brought into the parks. Uh, there's the original house up there. Not sure yet. I uh, haven't done enough investigation exactly what part of that house is still there. Uh, but I think the feeling is that there are at least some parts of it. Um, and um, there is, of course, Hauser's Ridge, which is runs north to south. Uh, and as an extension of the Nicodemus uh, geographic uh, formation, uh, which then goes in, you know, so if you're looking north to south, uh, you have Nicodemus, you have Hauser, then you have Real Ridge, and then eventually you're going to get down to uh, the ridge that runs along Harper's Ferry Road uh, down toward the southern part of the field. So it's a, it's a, a formation um, that is continuous through the entire battlefield. And the reason I'm bringing this up, not this is a geography lesson but, or a topography lesson, but that, as you guys know, those, that ridge is used by Lee to move his artillery up and down uh, throughout the day to support his, his uh, command. Um, so that's interesting that you can look at that, that ridge and you'll actually walk up there. It's part of the park. Uh, there's no trails over there, but you can get up there and see what that's all about. So there's a lot of, you know, the, the ridge is crowned with artillery and that uh, artillery in many ways uh, slowed, in fact, stopped the advance of Sedgwick's division as they come out of come out of the Westwoods, um, moving to the west and slowly arcing or pivoting around to the south. That artillery slows them down and stops them. And one could argue that that was just enough to allow uh, the um, 7,000 to 8,000 reinforcements that Lee was bringing up from the south side of the field uh, to hit them uh, at the moment they hit them um, and uh, do the great damage that they did. And some historians have pointed out that you know 15 minutes one way or another, uh, Cedric's division would have been completed its pivot to the south and would have been facing uh, Lee that way rather than being in a very vulnerable position uh, to be hit on the left flank as they make their turn. Um, but 
I, I've kind of lost the, the track of the question, so sorry. That's okay. If you want to repeat that more, um, but uh, there's other. Yeah, that's part of the, that's part of this podcast. We lose our track all the time. That's okay. The listeners okay. expect it. Well, I feel like I'm selling real estate, so I'm going to show you some tell you some other features over there. Uh, from a from our listeners, uh, you know, who are thinking of going over in that area, you also find. Um, the uh, Alfred Poffenberger uh, property, the locker cabin, as we call it, uh, that was there at the time. It was used as a, uh, a kind of an aid station by uh, Confederate forces uh, during the battle. And uh, the cabin is still there. Uh, we, we think uh, that the cabin was built sometime after uh, 1813 or 1820, sometime in the early part of the 19th century. They've done some uh, boring and analysis of that. I don't know what the latest uh, numbers are, but it's an early cabin and it's certainly pre-war. It was there at the time. Um, that's an inter interesting site to visit. You can't go in the cabin. There's big signs that tell you not to, uh, partly because it's it's um, still needs to be shored up and, and properly renovated. But there's a big kind of barn-like structure over it that protects it. Uh, and the park for a while back about 15 years ago was doing a lot of um, a lot of archaeological work over there, uh, trying to determine what what the nature of that property is all about. But anyway, it's over there. And the property itself, the cabin itself, appears in um, at least one drawing. Uh, I think it was uh, Alfred Wad's drawing of the battlefield during the time of the battle. And, and as Cedric's divisions move forward and engage with the Confederates defending that part of the field, um, the cabin is front and center and it's, it's included in one of the drawings. So it's, it's a pretty special place uh, in that it's recorded uh, that way. Um, there's also a barn over there, which is part of the property. Um, and all you see is the foundation, but the foundation has been stabilized. And that was a, that was a, a hospital Confederate hospital um, during during the battle. So there's some artifacts over there, architectural artifacts uh, that are worth poking around and looking at. Jim, I'm, uh, I'm I'm one of the, yeah. I'm one of the 100 who goes over there every year, maybe multiple times. I love that I love that part of the field because you feel like you're walking where people don't go, but where where something yeah. happened around the, the locker cabin, around that. That the foundation of that barn, which they've done a great job stabilizing it. You look, you see it. Say, what is, first, what is that over there? Yeah. And you start, then you start to study. Uh, and when you read it, then it's a good place to get take a book or a maps book or something because you start to uh, you start to see the terrain once you get on the other side of the of the road. Uh, what happens? Right. The other thing down in that area, my favorite monument on the battlefield, and probably my favorite monument on any Civil War battlefield, is the Fifteenth Massachusetts with mm -hmm. the wounded lion and rising above the road there. And, and just an incredible story, not about that, not just about the monument, but about the regiment that fought there and why they depicted themselves that way. Could you just give us a little bit? Because when you drive down the highway, we talk about when you see off to the right, you, you see that monument. Yeah, most people drive visit Antietam will drive down that highway and uh, they'll be going at 55 miles an hour and they'll just look to the right and see it up on the hill. But very few people actually stop and visit visit that monument and, and it's too bad because I think for my money, it's the one of the best, if not the best monuments on the field. Uh, it depicts a wounded lion um, and um, 
on a, on a pedestal. And on the base of the pedestal are listed the casualties of the 15th Massachusetts. Um, the 15th recruited from Worcester and southeast of Worcester along uh, the Mumford River Valley. Um, towns like Douglas, East Douglas, uh, Fitchburg, and Wittensville contributed companies to uh, to that outfit. And they came in um, to the battle with about 630, I'll get this wrong, but about 630, um, and they left uh, 300 and some, uh, 330 or so on the field after their engagement with um, the Confederates who were going to uh, counterattack them uh, across from across the road and hit their left flank eventually. So the 15th is one of the highest, if not the highest, uh, number of casualties any any particular regiment ever suffered. I think in the entire Civil War, I'd have to, I think I looked that up recently to make sure I fact checked myself. But uh, um, we can uh, edit that out if it's not true. That's not true. But I think that's pretty close to it. Um, they get hammered over there. Um, the the thing that I think that's valuable about that monument aside from its beauty, um, is, is the story of um, these various regiments uh, that are in that, excuse me, various companies are in that, that particular regiment. And I got to give credit to Susan Harnwell, who, uh, I mean, John, you know her, and, and Tom, you probably uh, heard about her, if not contacted. Amazing but, website. Amazing. Absolutely. And Susan has devoted her, I don't know, life, but a lot of time to putting together a website on the 15th Massachusetts. And particular use, particularly useful is the um, is her listing of every every single uh, soldier that was in that in that regiment. And it's a biographical listing, and uh, it only gets better and better as more people add to it. But with all of that. <clears throat> what you get is uh, a really nice piece of social history uh, that if anybody is interested in social history and wants to do a little more work uh, in that area, that's your website you'll go to. And that's your that's your primary sources there, all that work that she's done and laid that out. And so, Jim, it's, it's Harn, <clears throat> Harnwell, correct? H-A-R-N-W-E-L-L. -E -L -L. Yeah, yes. she's the web minister. I uh, was actually there this afternoon looking at looking through it again, and I'm not sure if I think she's still active. The last posting was 2021, so that's pretty good. Um, and um, I've corresponded with her once or twice. I think John, you've had contact with her over the years, but yep. uh, yes, indeed. it's a real gem of a website. And there are others in this country and around the world that do similar work, but nothing as exhaustive as what she's done. And the reason I'm bringing this up and going into this is that um, I, I've taken one company uh, out of the 15th and it was run by Captain uh, Sam Fletcher. And um, that company, when you look at her website, you start seeing the connections between men in that, in that uh, particular outfit in that particular company, you start to see other names such as Fletcher. So you see James Fletcher uh, and George Fletcher, um, who are brothers to Sam Fletcher. So they're the three Fletcher brothers that are there. And uh, that's once you start poking around a site, you see the connections. But also there's an Edward Chapin, who is a, a cousin of theirs. And so the four family members are there at 
at Antietam and just to probably to the few, few feet to the left of the 15th. And um, James uh, is killed uh, immediately. Uh, I mean, it was, it was um, a uh, fatal shot to, to his head, I believe it was, it was reported. Uh, and uh, Sam catches him uh, in his arms and lays him down there. Um, the other three, all three, uh, continue on to um, to their duties as uh, on the on the line. Uh, the brother George, of course, uh, his story is is interesting in that he has received a publication from his, I think his mother sent him, uh, might have been Harper's magazine that he has folded up prior to the battle after reading. He's folded up. He wanted to complete his reading. Um, and to a number of folds, probably about eight eight folds deep, put it in his breast pocket, and there uh, is the target for a bullet that uh, goes through uh, about half of that uh, wad of folded up newspaper and saves his life. It's a great story, one of those classic Civil War stories of uh, having something save your life that you didn't expect, but. As they go on in their career in the 15th, uh, George uh, is killed the next year at Gettysburg, and so is Edward Chapin. So the only ones left is Sam Fletcher. And um, on Susan's site, and you can get this at the Library of Congress, uh, is a picture of the 15th Massachusetts on September 17th, 1900. Uh, and the veterans have come back to dedicate this monument uh, the Lion Monument. And there's Sam Fletcher, according to, uh, to Sherry Fletcher, who is his great-great-granddaughter uh, living in New Mexico, uh, who are corresponded with. Um, and he's he's right there, uh, looking off into the distance, probably thinking about his, uh, his, his fallen uh, family's brothers, two brothers and cousin. Uh, but he survived, barely. He was severely wounded at Gettysburg. But that is a kind of one of those social history, social family stories uh, or family stories that are that abound in on just about any Civil War narrative. And it's alive and well there at that particular monument. Um, and you can you can use her website, if you will, and her listings uh, to probe even further and create additional uh, additional uh, connections between members of those of that regiment. It's, yeah. it's pretty interesting. It's meaningful for me because I have a, a knife plate Ruby Ambrotype of a soldier in the 15th Massachusetts who was killed in the West Woods, Justice right. Collins right. Wellington. And his name is in on, on the plaque on the back of the monument, this enormous bronze plaque. And his name is at the bottom left-hand corner. And several times I've taken the Ambrotype back and shot an image of the Ambrotype next to Justice's name on the monument. And to me, that connection is, is it's a strong connection. It, it's really, I'm not related to Justice Wellington, but that connection to him is really strong for me. And every time I go back to Antietam, I make a point of seeing this magnificent monument. Yeah, you sent me that picture, and I've used it. I uh, printed it off, and I use it on my uh, both the volunteer uh, tour as well as the guide tour, and it really brings it home to people, visitors. They they see the image, they see the, the uh, his name, uh, and they're standing on that spot. 
So it's one of those things where, you know, if you're interpreting a battlefield, it's really great to do it from the point where the event occurs, rather than standing up and just pointing off in the distance, this happened here, this happened there. And that's the kind of tour I like to take. I think a lot of guys do it this way, is we like to actually use the field as a teaching or as a discussion platform. Um, that doesn't sound very romantic, but I mean, uh, it's, it's a place where you can actually go to the spot uh, and talk about what happened on that ground uh, at on that day. Um, so that monument out there is important in that respect and launches a lot of different stories. Uh, the same with the Hoffenberger house across the street, lots of stories uh, of, uh, of, of people uh, who find a way to reunify uh, or to, to meet one another, uh, family members uh, at, at that location. Um, uh, during the battle or after the battle. So and Jim, those, the, the, we talked about the pristine nature of the Antietam battlefield. It's, it's one of the attractions of the place to so many people, and to me as well, because not only do you go where they were, but it looks like it did when they were there. I mean, yeah. Other than the highway and the monuments, it, it, much of the Antietam battlefield looks the way it did in 1862. Is you, you, right. you stand there, you're just kind of in awe of that. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And every time you do that, of course, some guy comes up with a uh, blasting up the road with a Ford F one fifty and has a has his uh, resonators blasting out. And you kind of, you know, you know they're doing it on purpose. They just want everybody to see them. But it drives me crazy. In fact, it's got so bad. Uh, a couple summer goes summers ago, I've actually not talked about the 15th monument so visibly and we kind of are hanging back in the wood line a little bit because as soon as they see you they want to they yeah. want to beep their horns yeah. and yeah. cause a ruckus but yeah you're right uh it's it is a pristine field and and again credit to the park service for regrowing that field um even 20 years ago when i was first started there 19, 18 years ago. Uh, a lot of those trees, there was no trees in some parts of that uh, that woodlot. And now that, that now they're 10, 15, 20 feet tall. So Park Service has really done a magnificent job. They always do uh, in preserving and growing the field in ways that are important. Tom, before, John, we, before, we, uh, before we go further, we want to make sure that we mention our official sponsor, Civil War Trails, was, which is in great support of this podcast. I was going to say, we have to credit Civil War Trails for this. Yeah, this podcast, Tom, is brought to you by Civil War Trails, the world's largest open-air museum offering 1,500 sites across six states, including over two dozen stops along their Antietam campaign driving trail. And you can request a free brochure to begin planning your trip at civilwartrails.org. And Tom, when you see one of the Civil War Trail signs out on the road and you stop, what what, do, what are we supposed to do? We do a hashtag sign selfie. Absolutely. And post it on social media. Exactly. And Drew Gruber will, will like it and repost it for you. Civil War Trails is a great program. Jim, I have another question for you, and I think this is something that, that you related to me many years ago in that you said something to the effect that when you walk through the Westwoods, as I have dozens and dozens of times, and you see a, a flower bursting from the, from the ground, what does that signify something? 
I've seen that several times. And I, didn't you tell me that there's some meaning to that? Well, yeah, I was, I think what I was referring to is uh, over the George Poffenberger farmstead uh, there. And you could see what would be, I guess you could call domestic uh, plantings uh, that are not part of the farm you know, crop or anything, but it, uh, you could see that the family had uh, some kind of a garden there or some sort of a uh, decorative uh, border here and there. And so those are still there. Uh, I think the thing that uh, uh, is also kind of interesting and uh, is that from time to time, and you see it over in the East Woods as well, and probably other places, but I don't go to those places, but uh, over in the East Woods, but also in the West Woods, uh, someone will come along and have left a, a little figurine, uh, like a dwarf, you know, kind of a little uh, dwarf, you see a lawn, lawn uh, ornament type thing, but small, obviously, or a creche or uh, a little toy horse or something like that. Uh, you, come, you come across these things uh, tucked up underneath a tree, um, um, sometimes set in a, in a kind of like a little diorama. Uh, and you take a picture of it and then you, you go on your way and then it's there for a couple months and then it's gone. Uh, my my colleague Laura Marfitt uh, sent me a picture a couple of years back. Uh, we were talking about this, and lo and behold, she she found it yet another little um, you know figurine or two that uh, were out in that area. Um, and you kind of wonder, well, who how did they get here? Why were they put here? And you, I guess, the easy answer and the most sensible answer is that they're put there by uh, ancestors. Uh, who may have lost uh, a uh, great grandfather or great grand uh, great uncle there, uh, and that's their way of memorializing uh, this individual. I'm just reading that into it, but there's something interesting about that uh, the the kind of mysterious nature of the woods, um, and uh, that shows up from time to time. I always thought those flowers signified like there was a burial there or something like that. I, I guess that's mm -hmm. not true. Then, not not that I would be able to say that no i don't think i'd hold to that i may have may have said it who knows but i won't say it now uh, um no i i don't think so um there are plenty of markers over there there's uh lemuel stetson's marker uh over there in the west woods uh, which is one of the only markers to an actual individual on the field um so that's there and there's a great story about stetson and and how how he got there, and then how more importantly, how his father uh, recovered him and uh, and made sure he was memorialized. Um, there, there. I think what I'm trying to get at here is that I'm I'm interested uh, uh, in in the social and familial histories of these places, and I'm uh, you know you have to be interested in the tactical and the military side of it, and that's very important. I don't don't want to put that. Uh, away, but I also think that drives me is just asking who are these people? Uh, what do they know? What were who were they to one another? Uh, and um, you know how did they how did they experience this this field this day? Uh, and I think that's that human that's the human element, the human perspective that you want to try to bring to your visitors, uh, which connects them back. To September seventeenth, eighteen sixty-two, in pretty profound ways, and uh, gives them a sense uh, uh, a little bit more connection to the events of that day.
Jim, toward that end, I've been on some of your leadership uh, walks where you, you apply leadership lessons in the battle to modern day business. And one of the things you bring up from the social history aspect over in, in the West was is one of the regiments in the Philadelphia Brigade, I believe. And you point out that all these guys were from the same neighborhood. We think of, you know, today, obviously, people, army units are from all over the country. Back, we know a little bit then you hear brother against brother and, and cousins fighting together, but the, the, the map that you had really showed how close all of these families in this one regiment lived to one another and they knew each other and they knew their sisters and they knew their parents and they knew their cousins. And it really kind of brings that point home. I never thought of that until I saw you do that display. Yeah, there's there's lots of opportunities, not only in the Westwoods, but all over the battlefield to look deeply into these particular uh, regiments and even further into the company uh, and how it's constructed. And uh, everybody who knows anything about the Civil War knows that uh, these these uh, companies uh, were recruited locally from small towns uh, and small towns, uh, the young men of small towns joined together. Uh, and went into battle together and in many ways, in many cases, didn't come back. Uh, and so one of the ones, there's a number of them I've been investigating for the for a number of years. One is the 15th Massachusetts, we've already talked about, but there's within the 15th, I've been doing some work on connecting uh, elements of the 15th to one another. So you can do that again, uh, if you know something about the individuals and uh, use a software program that starts to create a social and familial network visually. And it's quite quite interesting once it starts to run and do its thing, give its report. Uh, another one is the 72nd Pennsylvania, which is my great grandfather's outfit. Um, and so what I've taken, what I've done is taken Company F of the 72nd, which comes out of Philadelphia. It come out of uh, um, Northern Liberties and Fishtown, which is anybody been to Philadelphia recently knows some good neighborhoods. Um, originally, a lot of Irish living there. Uh, but I've taken that particular company um, and I've used the map, um, the the uh, census map of Philadelphia in 1860, um, showing the various wards and very detailed street uh, alignments, and have been able to plot using census records and other records, plot out where uh, these 65 uh, young men lived uh, in, uh, in Philadelphia, in particular those two neighborhoods. And when you start to play around with that, you start to see it visually, uh, reveal itself, you start to see a concentration of, of these individuals in a very tightly packed neighborhood. So from all of that, uh, you, you take away that they knew each other, um, their families knew each other, they played on the streets of Philadelphia together, uh, their families probably worked together in various light industries uh, along the Delaware River. And so you get a sense that this is a neighborhood that has gone to war. Um, this one company, Company F of the 72nd Pennsylvania. Um, and then you start to do some further work on, well, are these guys related to one another? And again, you're using census records and marriage records and other things. And you start to create a, a kind of a diagram of social network that's at play. Um, and right now I've got about 28% uh, in that one particular outfit that are, are, are related to one another. <laughs> Uh, as brother-in-laws. Um, and I've got a, a father and, and three or four sons together and so on and so forth. So you get a real 
an in-depth and very, very human view of who these guys were out on the field. And then you can carry that further as to ask the question. 72nd Pennsylvania loses nearly 50% of their boys out there on the field that day. What does that do to those two neighborhoods in Philadelphia? And what kind of impact does it have? And then you can use widows records uh, and invalid pension records and so on and so forth. So you really can dig down and pretty much write a whole book on one particular company. Um, I find that interesting. Uh, and most people I show these diagrams to get it. They understand that. Um, so I've done it for the 72nd, the 15th, uh, the 20th Massachusetts, uh, thanks to the work uh, on the 20th, the Harvard Regiment by uh, uh, Richard Miller um, gives you a lot of primary sources. The 10th Georgia is another one I'm working on. Uh, 3rd Arkansas and the 27th North Carolina, which is uh, down to the far south end of the field, uh, gets involved a little later on. But those there's some, been some really good research work done uh, on those outfits. And they're asking pretty much the same question I've been asking about the 72nd Pennsylvania. Who are they? How are they related to one another? And so there's all sorts of really, really great uh, work that's being done uh, all along this line. And I'm just speaking for the things I know. I'm sure people who hang out at the cornfield uh, or go over in the sunken road can find the can find similar uh, studies that are out there. But uh, to me, as far as I'm concerned, as far as I can tell from my visitors, that's the stuff a lot of them are interested in. They want to hear about that. Of course, Jim, some of this information, you have your own blog, right? Walking the West Yeah. Woods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been doing that for a while, and uh, nothing like yours, John. But uh, it uh, it it was intended originally, still is actually, is just a, a note taking blog. As I find documents and, and go to archives and come across letters, I'll I'll put it up there, and then I'll annotate it, and uh, and so there's no rhyme or reason to it uh, other than that. It's a a kind of a documentary history, if you will, a documentary history of the Westwoods. If you can I name heartily, it. heartily endorse it. It's Walking the Westwoods blog by Jim Buchanan. Jim, in, yeah. in, in the in the couple minutes, few minutes that we have left, where where can visitors to the battlefield find you? Are you still there every Saturday sitting in the chair near the Philadelphia Brigade Monument or? I try to, and this year I've dedicated, uh, kind of rededicated myself to going out there uh, far more often than I have. I, I finally retired from my second retirement, so I'm done as of yes, uh, December 31st. So uh, I'm going to try to get out there and, you know, we guides uh, do guide work, but they also do volunteer work. So I want to rack up uh, the couple hundred hours that's required to get a, this cool presidential uh volunteer badge i'm very jealous i want to get that so i'll be that's a long way of saying yes i'll be out there more often uh it may be on a saturday it might be a sunday and because i'm retired i might even go out there on a wednesday <laughs> could do that sort of thing but i'll be up by the fifth uh stop by the philadelphia brigade monument under a tulip poplar uh that's there and uh gives plenty of uh, uh plenty of shade now usually because i live in dc drive up there uh, I usually go up there early in the morning and stay till late at night. And because why not? Why 
I'll go up there for an hour or two. And how did you get the nickname Mayor of the Westwoods? Is that you a know, real, I'm not that a real weird, nickname? No, I don't. I, I did not promote that. Um, but um, I think it's just, you know, as guides, one of the things guides do and, and volunteers, would, one of the things we do, especially around this time of the year, uh, we do a lot of professional development uh, activities with one another. Uh, so uh, I'm going to be doing a, uh, a piece on for new volunteers uh, in a couple weeks uh, on um, the Second Corps, both in the Westwoods and also over at the uh, Sunken Road, um, and so on and so forth. And somehow along the way, someone introduced me, as, as kind of tongue-in-cheek, I think, um, <laughs> and with that, and it's kind of caught. Uh, so I'll, I'll stay, I'll keep it. It's all right with me. Well, next time I see you there, I'm going to refer to you as Mr. Mayor, if you don't mind. Mr. Mayor, I appreciate that. Uh, absolutely. Um, my constituents will thank you as well. That's outstanding. Yeah. Jim, thank you so much. John, do I start hearing the banjos? I that may be wrapping us I up. Think I, I think I'm hearing them. But first, I, oh, wanted to tell, I wanted to tell Jim that, that maybe next time we're up that way, we'll give him a we'll give him a. a a dinner at the press room over in oh the unofficial official restaurant yes. semi official restaurant yeah I am so starting... John go ahead no go ahead well John I want to ask you all all this time I want to ask you are you wearing the same muddy boots that appears <laughs> on a Civil War road trip of a lifetime are you oh, wearing them tonight I, I wear them to bed but tonight I'm not wearing them sadly <laughs> I see. On our on our next podcast, maybe we'll talk more about the boots. So that's funny. The boots tell a story, man. Every one of those many miles in those boots. So they do. They do. They deserve oh, their own podcast. Absolutely. And now I think Tom, I am here. Do you hear them? I. Uh, they're coming now. They're hearing the banjos. Jim, thanks. Thanks, again. everyone. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. I'll see you out in the field and hope uh, people listening uh, join us there as well. Take care.